0: Good morning again. Encourage you, really encourage you to keep your Bible open, or if you don't have a Bible uh, open already, to grab one and open it. We're going to look closely at this passage this morning. You're going to want to be able to track along with the things that I'm saying as I talk about verse this and verse that. So encourage you to keep a Bible open or get a Bible open. There's a Purack Bible. Of course, you can feel free to grab that and, and open that to our passage this morning from Matthew chapter 7. Let me pause. Let me ask the Lord to... Bless and grace the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace that comes wave after wave after wave into our lives, into our church, into our world, all because of the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for the gift, the gifts of your grace, in fact. The gift of your word, of course, the gift of your spirit, the gift of the body of Christ, the gift of one another. We are a gift to one another this morning, the communion of saints. We're grateful for each other's presence. Father, we're grateful for the spiritual gift of illumination, how your spirit enlivens the eyes of our hearts so that we can see and so we can hear. So we pray that you would do that Sight giving, increasing comprehension of the word this morning. Give us ears to hear well, a sensitivity to the leading and direction of your spirit. Ultimately, we would hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us this morning through his word, by his spirit. Before we pray this in his name, amen. Well, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, our passage this morning, the final passage of the, the body of the Sermon on the Mount, kind of proper, the kind of content, it's got an introduction, it has a conclusion, the conclusion we will look at next week, it's verses 13 through the end of chapter 7 is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 verses 1 through 12 is the final part of the content of the Sermon on the Mount, if you will, the substance, the body of the sermon, so to speak, here verses 1 through 12. And you'll notice when we read this passage, when we preach this passage, when we teach this passage, we tend, don't we, to get stuck on those first two words that stand out to us at the beginning of verse 1. You see them there, judge not. We tend to get stuck on those two words, and understandably so, because they are. it is an arresting way for Jesus to begin. Feel the blunt force of these two words, judge not, and when we're honest, I think we all know that we struggle to do the very thing Jesus is saying we shouldn't do, we struggle with doing it, we're tempted to do it, to judge other people, and Jesus is saying, judge not. So, when we read this passage, we tend to, it seems to me, get stuck on, or you might say fixate on these first two words, judge not. The problem with that is that we tend to lose the forest from the trees, getting stuck on those two two words, because when we do that, what we do is we miss... The positive vision, I think, Jesus is assuming in this passage and setting out in this passage, at least indirectly, a positive vision. Positive vision, you're thinking to yourself, well, it begins with judge not. What's positive about that? And all of this kind of rebuke language and this you hypocrite stuff in verse 5. Like, what's the positive vision? I know it sounds counterintuitive, but consider this. Jesus, in these opening verses of chapter 7, he isn't simply condemning a certain kind of behavior. He's also, and I think more importantly, commending a certain kind of behavior. Not just condemning, but commending a certain kind of behavior away of interacting with one another. He's saying to his disciples, yes, condemning a certain way that his disciples can interact with one another, but commending a way they ought to interact with one another as well. Well, let me put it this way. When Jesus begins in verse 1 of chapter 7 saying, judge not, that's not an end in itself for Jesus. It's not like the end game, the end goal for the Christian is to not be judgmental. Now Jesus says judge not in route to encouraging his disciples to be about something else. To be for one another in a better way, in a healthier way, in a life-giving and loving way. What is this vision Jesus sets forth for his disciples, his followers, for you and me this morning in this passage? It begins with these stark two words, judge not. I call it, this vision he's setting out for us, I call it, the Ministry of Speck Removal. Come on. Do you know about the Ministry of Speck Removal? One dear sister obviously does. Some of you do it quite well. The Ministry of Speck Removal. Others of you have tried to do it and it hasn't, hasn't gone so well. Still others have had it done to you, and, well, you wish it hadn't been done to you. The ministry of speck removal. That's what happens when followers of Jesus love one another really well. When brothers and sisters in the faith come alongside one another, get into each other's lives in a really intimate way, Help one another see the specks, that is the sin, in our lives. And then help us turn away from it. To see it, to say something about it, and to help remove the speck. You see, that's what Jesus is Assuming and affirming in these opening verses, they begin with judge not, the ministry of speck removal. And so look with me at verse 3 where he talks about seeing the speck in a brother or sister's life. That is not in itself a bad thing to see a speck in a brother or sister's life. That is not in itself a bad thing. Verse 3, nor is saying something about it in verse 4, like, hey, can I help take that speck out of your eye? It's not a bad thing. And verse 5, take a look there. It implies something very loving that we're going to help a brother or sister get the speck out of their life. Seeing, saying, helping. Verses 3, 4, and 5, nothing wrong with any of that. In fact, this is a vision of loving interaction in the body of Christ. Helping one another grow in Christlikeness and godliness. This is loving accountability and community. This is a service to one another. Or you might put it this way. The ministry ministry of speck removal is a ministry of love. Not to trivialize it, but it's like going out to eat with some friends and you enjoy a delicious salad, but you got a little Brussels sprout sticking out from your teeth. And you want someone in that situation, you want the friend to discreetly and kindly and lovingly point it out. Hey, you got a piece of cauliflower between your two teeth. So too, if someone has a speck, sin in their life, I would want someone to kindly, discreetly, lovingly point it out. It's a ministry of speck removal. And what I'm trying to say to you this morning in light of this passage, though I know it strikes us as counterintuitive, is that that is what Jesus is assuming and affirming in this passage, the positive vision of a ministry of speck removal within the body of Christ and among his followers. Of course, the problem is, Rather than engaging lovingly in the ministry of speck removal, we prefer to play the part of the condemning judge, even with one another. So that rather than kindly, discreetly, lovingly coming alongside one another to help each other deal with our struggles and with our sins, we prefer to stay aloof, keep our distance, even sit in the judgment seat, put on a dark gown, get a nasty grimace on her face, grab a gavel, and play God in each other's lives, the condemning judge. It's an ironic and sad thing, isn't it, that Christians tend to be very, very good at judging others. That may be why nine out of ten younger outsiders, those outside the Christian faith, describe Christians as judgmental, nine out of 10. So the people you brush shoulders with at work and in your neighborhood and at school, if they're under the age of about 40, nine out of 10 of them will think it is an accurate description of Christians to call them judgmental. But so too, evidently, those inside the faith, not just those outside the faith, faith, but our children and our young adults, those in our student ministries and even our children's ministries here in our own church. Those who have studied these things say 53% of those young adults and young people within the body of Christ, within the church, will say the same thing about Christians. They're judgmental. And if we're honest, we can't entirely fault them for that impression, can we? Now, I want to ask you a question I want you to think with me about the answer to this question. Why do we as Christians find it so easy to do the very thing that Jesus condemns in this passage? Namely, judge others. Why is that? Why do we find it so tempting? Why do we find it so easy? Why do we even find a kind of perverse pleasure at times in judging others? with a critical spirit and condescension. As I've thought about this question recently, I've come up with a couple of reasons. Let me see if they resonate with you. The first reason, I think, why we find it so tempting to judge others is Well, it's a subtle reason, but it's a significant reason. I want you to track with me on this reason, see if this illuminates some things for you. And it has to do with this, that we identify with the wrong person when we read our Bibles. We identify with the wrong person when we read our Bibles. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, it's very tempting, especially for those of you who read your Bible a lot, to identify not with the flawed and fallen characters in the Bible, but with God. Because the Bible so often talks from God's perspective, and we get a window in on what God thinks, how God evaluates the world, how God judges the world. We get insight into all of that. Just read the Old Testament. A scholar by the name of Mark Allen Powell did some interesting research on the gap, the gap between the pulpit and the pew and how pastors read their Bibles evidently, (laughs) differently from the way congregants read their Bibles. And it's fascinating what he came up with and the conclusions of his research, and it's also, I must confess, a little frightening. This is what he said. Pastors and preachers tend to read their Bibles from God's perspective and Jesus' perspective. Congregants and lay people tend to read their Bibles from one of the characters in the Bible's perspective. David or Elijah or the children of Israel or Peter or one of the other disciples. It's fascinating. but As a preacher, I must say it's also frightening. And I think the problem, I think the challenge is this that we start to sit in God's seat, as it were, and see the world through God's eyes as though we were in God's seat evaluating the world rather than being a fellow struggler and pilgrim and sojourn in the world like the children of Israel. My sister came up from Indianapolis last weekend to uh, visit and she took her, brought her daughter with her who is best buddies with my daughter, Marta Kate. And so they went downtown to spend Saturday evening and afternoon and evening and night in downtown Chicago and spent the night down in the city. And my sister reported the next day that there were, in her view, and she's lived in Chicago before, an unusual number of street preachers out on Saturday night, she said, down on Michigan Avenue. But not street preachers like the kind that like share the love of Jesus in a winsome way to a dying world, but rather the kind of street preachers with big old placards, with pithy statements of judgment, sitting, as it were, in the seat of God. Powerful reminder to me that when reading my Bible. I need to remember that I'm not God. I'm a whole lot more like Fickle Peter or Treacherous David or Doubting Thomas than I am like Jesus. So not to identify or over-identify with the wrong person in the Bible, that may cultivate a kind of critical spirit towards the world as though you sit in the seat of God himself. I think a second reason why we are so... Tempted, find it very easy to judge other people is another word that begins with I. Insecurity. Yes, we're insecure about ourselves, of course. We all struggle with that. But even more importantly, about our relationship with God. About our standing with God. And when you're deeply insecure or unsure about your own standing before God, you will also tend to be deeply insecure and unsure about your own standing before others. You will be highly sensitive to the opinions of others, Beholden to the opinions of others because you are insecure about God's opinion of you. And the way you protect yourself, the way we protect ourselves from the opinions of others when we're very insecure and fragile and brittle and reactionary, is we go at other people with criticism. Criticism is a way of deflecting the opinions of others when we're hypersensitive to them. And so you're far more likely to want to criticize and judge others when you're insecure in your relationship with God, never to pull them down and prop yourself up. Do you remember the story that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the publican? I mentioned it last week. It is a classic, classic story. These two people standing there praying together, the Pharisee presuming to be quite self-righteous, quite righteous and self-righteous in that sense, and the publican who knows he is nothing but a sinner before God and needs the grace and the mercy of God. The Pharisee stands there praying in a rather confident tone and condescendingly even criticizing in his prayers. I don't know if you've ever tried that before. I wouldn't recommend it. I thank you, God, that I am not like this poor publican sinner, is the way he prays. I suspect what's going on deep in his own soul, as Jesus tells the story, is a sense that he's not right with God, which is exactly what Jesus says, that the Pharisee does not go home justified in right standing with God, but the publican does. We find it easy to judge others because we identify with the wrong person in the Bible, but also because of our insecurity and our relationship with God. There is, though, a third reason I want to mention, and it's this, and yes, it begins deliciously with another I, and the word is indignant, indignant. Easy for us to judge others when we are indignant about something, that is to say, When we are harboring some kind of hurt or injury from some person or some group of people, when we secretly resent or indignant what that person is or what that person has done or what that group of people have done or who they are, and and our resentment, we kind of feed it and give in to it by judging them. It's an expression of a lack of forgiveness, ultimately. And we do this, I think, in all sorts of ways. Men and women do this to one another. People of different races do this to one another. People of different socioeconomic classes or professions can do this to one another. Patience, critical of doctors, for example. People with different roles in institutions can do this with one another. I see this in school settings, faculty and administration on the one hand and students on the other. Or in churches. Congregants can be critical of elders and pastors. They feel like they've been wronged in someone. They're indignant because of it. Incredibly easy to judge others when you feel like you've been wronged by them. Remember the story of Jesus' disciples when they went into a town and evidently they weren't treated very well by the people that they went in to preach the gospel and and declare the kingdom of God. They weren't treated very well in the city. We don't get the details of how they were treated, but presumably they went away mocked and scorned and rejected and sent out on a train, right, out of town. Rebuffed. Now how do they respond? They played the part of the condemning judge. Got outside the city, rallied with Jesus, and asked Jesus this question out of their indignancy. Jesus, should we call down fire on those folks? Very easy to judge others when we are indignant indignant about who they are or something they've done, some wound, some hurt, a lack of forgiveness ultimately. What you see in our passage, though, is Jesus takes judging others incredibly seriously. He doesn't like it when we play the part of the condemning judge. In fact, he candidly warns his followers about doing this, about what the consequence will be if we judge one another. And this is what he says, very plainly. If we judge others, God will judge us. Look at verse 1. Judge not. Why should you judge not? Purpose, That you be not judged. The reference, of course, is to the judgment, the final judgment. And though it's not made explicit in verse 1, it's assuming, of course, the allusion, of course, is to God. God is the one who's going to do the judging on the day of judgment. And Jesus here in verse 1 is applying what you might call the principle of reciprocity to his followers as a warning. That God's going to treat you as you treat other people. And so look at how he explains things in verse 2. Quote, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The principle of reciprocity. We judge others, God will judge us. It's exactly what Jesus's brother, James, says in his letter, both in chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, you want to look there, but also in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 of the book of James. This is what James says. Listen to how I believe he's just echoing his brother's teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he says this, quote, "'Do not speak evil against one another, brothers.'" The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor, James asks. Paul does much the same in Romans chapter 14 writing to the church in Rome that's being torn apart because of critical spirit and judgmental attitudes one to another. So he's got to get to this point in the letter. Lots of theology and reflection leading, I believe, to chapters 14 and 15, the climax of the letter, where he has to address this congregation that is coming apart at the seams because of a critical spirit and judgmental attitudes. Exactly what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 14 of the book of Romans. Paul says this, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What's Paul saying? What's James saying? What's Jesus saying, I think they're all saying the same thing, and it's simply this, we should not arrogate to ourselves, right? Not, Not arrogate or assume for ourselves what only belongs to God Himself, the right and the authority to judge others. Serious consequences follow for those who try to play the part of God in the lives of others. But you notice, look in your Bible, it doesn't end. Jesus' admonition and advice and counsel doesn't end there in verse 2. Look there in verses 3 through 5. He goes on and adds to the sober warning an illustration to explain things. He's further reinforcing his point about not judging others en route to this encouraging ministry of speck removal in verses 3 through 5. Notice how he does it. He gives us what's intended there in verses 3, 4, and 5, intended no doubt to be like almost a comical image of you have a speck in your eye, right? Or excuse me, you see a speck in someone else's eye, but you can't even see the log hanging out of your own eye. Jesus, no doubt, almost being comical here to get the point, the picture of someone who sees the speck of sin in someone else's life but fails to see the massive issue in his Or her own life. Look at verses 3 and 4. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, Jesus says? But do not notice the log that's hanging out of your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, excuse me, let me take the speck out of your eye? when there's like a massive log hanging out of your own eye. What's Jesus doing here in these two verses? He's opposing, obviously, of course, haughty, Self-righteousness, haughty self-righteousness, the kind that likes to judge others. She's no problem with oneself, and she's lots of problems with lots of other people, and so haughty self-righteousness that judges others. But notice what he's calling for. Opposing haughty self-righteousness, what is he calling for? Humble self-awareness. The kind that prefers to deal with the speck or specks in one's own life before presuming to help others. And so notice, note this please, very carefully note this, it's not that Jesus is forbidding any and every form of like moral evaluation or moral discernment about the lives of others. It's not what he's doing here. He's not saying like just quit morally evaluating your own life or the lives of other people. That's not at all what he is saying here when he says do not judge. Notice, for example, verses 15 and following where Jesus is going to emphasize the point that we actually as followers of Jesus ought to evaluate or you might say judge with a small j people's lives on the basis of the fruit in their lives. He's going to go on to say that in just a paragraph or two later. So he's not calling for an abandonment of moral discernment or moral evaluation in the lives of other people. What is he doing? His point is this. If you're going to engage in the ministry of speck removal in the lives of another follower of Jesus, then you need to do your own work in your own life first. Otherwise, you're going to play the part of the condemning judge, haughty self-righteousness, and you're going to play the part of the hypocrite. And so see how Jesus advises his followers there in verse 5. You hypocrite, he says. Which I think means don't be a hypocrite. Don't play the part of the hypocrite. Don't play the part of the condemning judge. as so you have no problems. How do you do that? Well, verse 5 tells us first, Jesus says, first... Take the log out of your own eye. Do your own work, humble self-awareness. Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly. Be able to do something loving. To take the speck out of your brother's or sister's eye. Positive vision of speck removal. Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, you know, he talks about this same thing. Ministry of speck removal, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, If anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual ought to seek to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness, not haughty self-righteousness, in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Humility, self-awareness. It's a positive vision of speck removal in the people of God. Of course, not everybody's into the ministry of speck removal. Not everybody is going on a fellow believer to come alongside them and help them identify the specks in their lives, right? Even self-identifying Christians can at times strongly resist this kind of ministry of speck removal push back against it, become infuriated by it, not because it wasn't done with grace and love and humility and mercy, but because they don't want to have any part in it. Perhaps you've bumped up against someone like this as you've tried to do the ministry of speck removal in a loving and humble and gracious way. Jesus anticipates this kind of response. He even speaks to it very bluntly. You see it there in verse 6. Take a look there, where he's speaking about, I believe, those who resist the ministry of speck removal, and he calls them dogs and pigs. They rebuff, they resist, they reject the loving rebuke of a brother or sister. The book of Proverbs talks about these folks and uses the word fool, Jesus here using a very vivid vivid pair of images, dogs and pigs. And his point is, don't waste your energies on them. If it is strident and if it is persistent, and if they show themselves, as Jesus would say, to be dogs and pigs, or as Proverbs would say, to be fools, want no part of the ministry of speck removal, And don't waste your energies on them. That would be, as Jesus says, look at verse 6, that would be like throwing pearls before swine, and they may even turn and attack you. Pretty sober-minded, little dose of realism from Jesus here in verse 6, isn't it? But let me close by making two final observations about this passage. Notice, first, The passage that comes immediately after verses one through six, notice it's a new paragraph probably in your printed Bible, but notice what it's talking about. It is an encouragement on the surface, it's an encouragement from Jesus to pray, encouraging his disciples to pray. Look at verse seven, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Why does he go from this ministry of speck removal and judging not to an encouragement to pray? Are these just pearls on a string that are not connected? I don't think so. Rather, I think they are connected by the same principle of judging or misjudging. Misjudging. Notice what Jesus is saying in verses 7 through 11. Not just an encouragement to pray. It is an encouragement to not judge or misjudge God. Because not only are we prone to judge others, check it out, we are just as prone to judge God. And when we judge God, we almost always make Him out to be far less gracious than He actually is. I have a little pet theory in light of verses 7 through 11 in this context. And my little pet theory is this. You mind if I share it with you? I've got a live mic, so I'm just going to go ahead and share it with you. My little pet theory is this. I suspect it's the case that those who judge others also judge God. And that those who are harsh towards others are probably harsh towards God. And that those that are highly critical of others are probably also pretty critical of God. And those, you know, who put the worst possible spin on another person's behavior or life, they probably have a hard time trusting God's providence in their own life and are tempted to put the worst possible spin on God's behavior in their life. You see, it's not for no reason that this passage about misjudging God comes right after the passage about misjudging or judging other people. My last observation comes from the last verse that was read for us this morning, verse 12. Take a look there where you see Jesus sets out what we now call the golden rule, verse 12, where it is, this verse 12, the summary of all of the content of the Sermon on the Mount. What does the whole Sermon on the Mount teach in a nutshell It is there in verse 12. We call it the golden rule. Jesus summarizes his whole teaching this way. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now what I want you to think about is this summarizing statement in verse 12 and how it connects to what he said about judging others just a few breaths ago. And when you do that, what I think arises in your mind is this. A very simple observation, but it needs to be stated, that judging others is a failure to love. Judging others is a violation of the golden rule. Who in here wants to be judged by another person? And so, do unto others as you would have them do you, and indeed to engage in the ministry of speck removal with the right humble spirit and posture, that's not an exercise in judging other people. Rather, that's an expression of the golden rule of love. And how much better, how much stronger would our lives be? Would our life as a congregation be? Would the church, more broadly speaking, how much better and stronger would we be if we judged each other a little less and came alongside one another a lot more in humility and in love, helping one another fight the fight of faith, helping one another identify the specks and remove the specks so that we grow in likeness, how much better, how much stronger would we be as individuals and as a church? Jesus, of course, models this ministry for us so, so beautifully. When we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ, rather than judging or condemning us, he died for us the just for the unjust. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become in him the righteousness of God. Not judgment and condemnation because of our sin or the specks, even the logs in our lives. Grace and mercy flowing freely from the cross of Christ. He saved us, Scripture says, not because of works done by us in righteousness, praise God, but according to his own mercy, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen? Father, thank you for the lavish grace that we see in the person of Christ in the work of Christ. Thank you for grace upon grace that comes our direction, all because of the sacrifice of Jesus. May our gaze be fixed as we close out this, sermon, this message and this morning. May our gaze be fixed on the gracious life and sacrifice of Jesus. And may it transform our hearts, our minds, the way we see. We might judge not, but that we might also in love engage in the ministry of speck removal for our own good and for the good of those that we care about here in the body of Christ. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.